0: Who are the Little Rock Nine? What role did the 1954 Supreme Court Brown v. Board of Education decision play in their education? And what impact did this group of nine students have on history? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. In 1954, the Supreme Court passed the historic Brown v. Board of Education decision, which declared all laws permitting segregation in schools be considered unconstitutional. Three years later, in 1957, the NAACP registered nine black students to attend an all white school in Little Rock, Arkansas that upcoming school year. When these nine students arrived on their first day of school, they were met with mobs as they were prevented from entering the school by the Arkansas National Guard. The torment persisted for the remainder of the school year, and the school was shut down the following year as a result. So, how did the community react? What role did the local and state governments play? And when did the federal government decide to step in to mediate this racial upheaval? Well, here to talk me through all of it is George W. Donahay, Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Arkansas, Dr. John Kirk. John, thank you so much for coming on Getting Schooled. How are you doing? I'm doing
1: great. Thanks. Thank you for having me along.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, this is an important conversation. The Little Rock Nine really became a symbol for the fight for the right to attend school despite race. So can you just start from the beginning? What happened and who are the Little Rock Nine?
1: The Little Rock Nine are the nine students who ended up uh, desegregating Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas in September 1957. Um after three years uh, of the after uh, in three years after Brain versus Board of Education and the U.S. Supreme Court decision, which uh, desegregated schools. So it took three years to get from the school desegregation ruling in 1954 uh, to the little Rock school crisis in September of 1957.
0: That's crazy to think about. Right. I mean, three years. What went on in those three years?
1: Well, one of the interesting things, I think, about Little Rock is that it was one of the first cities to set up a plan to desegregate uh, only days after the Brown v Board of Education decision came down. And ironically, it became one of the flashpoints for resistance to school desegregation. Um, And the early indications were good. Uh, They hired a new superintendent of schools called Virgil Blossom, and he drew up a plan for school desegregation, which initially... Uh, contained a fair amount of desegregation in the city's schools. Uh, But as time passed and as resistance grew, um, and as the lead-up to Brown II came in May of 1955, which was the implementation decision for the Brown decision, the school board kind of began to dial back on its plans and started to water down its plans for school desegregation. And that kind of continued up until uh, March 1956, when um, it began to open new schools. I and mean, one of the interesting things I think about the desegregation uh, in Little Rock is that uh, in preparing for school desegregation, one of the things that Virgil Blossom did was to build new segregated schools. So at the time uh, in Little Rock, when uh, Brown Board of Education came down, there were two main high schools. One was Central High School, which was uh, for white students, And one was dunbar high school which was for african-american students and they were not that very far apart in the downtown area uh, around central little rock and uh, when the plan went forward to desegregate schools one of the things that blossom did was to embark upon a new school building plan and one of the new schools he built was called horace mann high school which was over towards the east of the city and the other one was hall high school which was uh, over far west of the city and those were clearly in areas of African-American and white residents, so marked out as black and white schools, with the plan to desegregate Central High, which was in a fairly mixed African-American white neighborhood uh, in the central part of the, of the uh, town. And uh, when initially Blossom said that they would be colorblind, uh, racially neutral schools, but in 1956, Blossom assigned an all black teaching staff to Horace Mann, mm. which clearly signaled it as a black school in a black neighborhood. And it was at that point that the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the state organization, uh, filed a lawsuit against the Leroy the School District uh, to desegregate schools and to move faster with their school desegregation plan.
0: Wow. And who who were those nine students? Um, why were they chosen to go to Central High School?
1: Right. Well, you know, the interesting thing is that they chose themselves. Um, They uh, weren't chosen by anybody. Uh, A a bunch of students stepped forward. In fact, there were almost 200 people who applied in the first place. But uh, Blossom uh, kept devising ways to get that number down. So he started introducing uh, interviews for students. And he would tell students, for example, who were band members. They couldn't play in the band if they went to Central High because the newly integrated school wouldn't allow the integration of extracurricular activities, for example. Mm. Uh, He said the same thing to football players. And so he tried to to dissuade as many students as possible uh, from attending. Then he set up IQ tests, mandatory IQ tests for those who applied. So lots of barriers were put in the way. And through that way, they whittled down around 200 applications to in the end, around 17, then some of those dropped out. in the end, it, it came down uh, to the Little Rock Nine who entered Central High School. And they you know chose themselves in the sense. They weren't plants or anything. Uh, local segregationists would say that they were imported from the city, uh, imported to the city from outside, but that just wasn't true. There were people who lived there, who had families there, who were raised in Little Rock. but they just wanted access to a better education. They felt that the uh, programs that run at Central High School were ones that weren't offered in the segregated schools that they uh, needed to go to, and uh, that in some instances, the school was just closer to their homes and they would have to travel miles away to go to the new Black high school rather than go to a school on their doorstep. Mm -hmm. So for a variety of reasons, they uh, wanted to go to Central High School.
0: Well, take me through that moment when they showed up to school because, you know, the National Guard was called and then President Eisenhower had to get involved. Will you just take me through that timeline?
1: Yeah, it's quite a complicated timeline. Uh, Initially, um, when Central High School was due to desegregate, uh, Governor Oval Forbes. Uh, called out the National Guard to prevent the desegregation of the schools. And on the first day, nobody went to school at all because the school board told the students to stay at home. Then the next day, uh, Elizabeth Eckford turned up on her own to go to school. Uh, The mentor of the Little Rock Nine was Daisy Bates, who was the state leader of the uh, NAACP. And uh, she mentored the Little Rock Nine and Elizabeth Eckford didn't have a telephone So before uh, the schools reduced to desegregate, uh, their plan was that they would all go to Daisy Bates' house. Mm. Elizabeth Eckford didn't get that phone call, and she ended up turning up on September 4th uh, to Central High School on her own. And she found a mob had gathered, and National Guard soldiers, which Oval Forbes had called out, blocked her way and prevented her from going uh, into the school. And she was left all alone in the midst of this mob and uh, she uh, quietly and calmly walked over to the bus station, followed by the mob, and thankfully waited for the bus. The bus turned up, and it got her out of there. Um, but um, then uh, there were weeks of sort of backwards and forwards between uh, the White House and uh, Governor Oval about what was going to happen next. Eventually, uh, what happened is that the, for- uh, the courts forced... Uh, Forbes to remove the National Guard from Central High School. But when Forbes removed the National Guard from Central High School, he um, left the city and he left it in the hands of the local police, having created this tension in the city, having stirred up this mob feeling in the city. and Then uh, at the uh, end of that weekend, uh, on the Monday when students tried to go to the school, uh, there was a mob waiting for them, uh, surrounding Central High School. And uh, what happened is that there were a bunch of African-American reporters there uh, to record events at the school, and the mob mistook them for the students. So they charged after them. And while they had their attention, uh, the Little Rock Nine sort of pulled up to a side entrance and walked into the school from there. But as the morning wore on, it was the local police who were left to try and uh, keep order in the city because the National Guard had then been withdrawn. And uh, the police said, we can't keep order anymore. and The mob is starting to overrun us. And so for their own safety, they recommended that the students were withdrawn from the school. And so the students went back home again. And then it was really a question of whether the federal government was going to allow uh, state authority to trump federal authority and let mob rule in the streets of Little Rock, or whether it was going to back the Supreme Court's order to desegregate schools and back the federal courts and force uh, Little Rock to continue with its school desegregation plan that it said it was going to implement. And so ultimately, uh, President Eisenhower decided to federalize the Arkansas National Guard to put it under his control and to send in troops, the 101st Urban Division uh, to accompany the Little Rock Nine to school on September 25th. And uh, they uh, then were accompanied by an armed guard uh, to school uh, through the mob um, to, for their own protection. Mm-hmm. And uh, that happened uh, for several days afterwards uh, to, uh, to protect them.
0: You mentioned several, several days af- afterwards, but how long in general did that unrest Last? Because you imagine these nine students showing up to school and I'm assuming just terrified because of this mob. How long do they have to endure that?
1: Well, it was quite a long process. Uh, the federal troops withdrew within a month or two and they were replaced by the National Guard at Central High School. But what happened is that once uh, the Little Rock Nine were into the school, the battle really then turned uh, inwards, into the school itself. And many of the sons and daughters of the people who were in the mob outside, of course, attended Central High School. And they were the ones then who tried to start putting pressure on the Little Rock Nine to withdraw from the school. Because, of course, if they could get them to voluntarily withdraw from the school, then there would be nobody there to desegregate the school. So once they got into the school, the Little Rock Nine faced a campaign of Intimidation from a group of white students who were determined to try and get them out of the school. And they suffered uh, a lot of mental and physical torture at the hands of those students, but they held firm throughout the school year. Although uh, one student, Minnie Jean Brown, um, got into a few altercations with uh, white students and, and uh, decided to sort of fight back and answer back to them. And because of that, around Christmas time, uh, she was removed from the school. Mm. Uh, So, you know, there was a lot of intense pressure on the students to uh, stay out the course of the school year. But uh, the other eight students made it through to the end of that school year. And Ernest Green, who was the only senior among the group, was the first uh, African-American to uh, graduate from Central High School uh, in graduation ceremonies the following year in 1958.
0: So how many of them did graduate?
1: Um, it turned into a complicated situation because even after the end of that first year, um, the, um, the, the, the whole situation wasn't over. In fact, uh, after the end of the first school year uh, that saw desegregated schools in Little Rock, what Forbes did over the summer was to close all of the city schools so that they couldn't desegregate. So from the 1958 to 59 school year, all of the city's high schools were closed. So they couldn't desegregate. So neither black nor white uh, children could attend uh, high school uh, during that year.
0: So where did they go to high school while the Little Rock schools were temporarily closed?
1: That's a good question. I mean, they had to find alternative means of education. Mm -hmm. Some of them went uh, to different parts of the state to stay with relatives uh, at some point, they, uh, the school district put up uh, televised broadcasts to do uh, education by television. Segregationists helped to set up an alternative private school for white students uh, to go to T.J. Rainey Academy. And so students had to basically find a way uh, to school themselves over that year when the schools were closed. And of course, that impacted more negatively on African-American students who had fewer resources Uh, to get an alternative education uh, than many of the white students did.
0: All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. We focus so much on Central High School, but were there other schools following that 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision that had a parallel response to integration?
1: Uh, well, of course, you know, in the Bramby Board of Education decision covered all schools um, in the south and the border states that were uh, segregated. So school desegregation sort of worked itself out uh, district by district, essentially. And uh, Little Rock is important because it was really the first major urban school district that had to come to terms with actually enforcing school desegregation, actually putting its plan into practice which is why the eyes of the country and the world were upon it, because Little Rock was really a bellwether in many ways for what was going to happen going forwards and whether the federal government was going to be serious about backing up the U.S. Supreme Court decision or not. So Little Rock was really the test case for what was going to happen in lots of uh, different districts. But, um, you know, uh, things turned out different ways in different places. You know, Arkansas Uh, In the northwest part of the state, there's a very small black population and the school districts in that uh, part of the state were among some of the first to desegregate in the United States. Uh, Up in Charleston and Fayetteville, those school districts had very small numbers of African-American students and those uh, school districts had bused black students at a fair amount of expense to the nearest city to the nearest black school so that they could get an education. Mm -hmm. It was ultimately cheaper than building a school just for a few black students. So when Brown versus Board of Education came down, they were actually kind of quite willing to desegregate because it was cheaper for them to desegregate than it was to bus students or provide uh, personal tutors for black students and build a separate black school for those students. Mm -hmm. So some school districts actually embraced School desegregation, even in Arkansas, in part because it was cheaper for them to do so, and it reduced their costs.
0: Right. Obviously, this this entire story is about desegregation, but it's also about so much more. You've studied this a lot. What role do you think the Little Rock Nine played, just in the overall civil rights movement?
1: Well, the the Little Rock Nine uh, and the, the Little Rock story is kind of curious. On the one hand it demonstrated that federal government would uh, step up to the plate if necessary to enforce civil rights. And what Eisenhower did in terms of uh, a show of force for the federal government in favour of civil rights, set a very strong and important precedent that the federal government was serious in upholding civil rights, that it was going to back round with his Board of Education. But of course, at the same time, it was kind of infeasible for... um, for the federal government to send uh, an entire uh, army battalion into every school district across the entire South. Mm-hmm. So that couldn't happen. And in that sense, it was kind of an anomaly. But what it did also show is the importance of creating a conflict and providing a, 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 a leverage for the federal government and a reason for the federal government to act and to, to do something or to give people a reason to act and do something. I think that was a really important uh, idea that went forward in the civil rights movement. You see it with the sit-ins, you see it with the freedom rides, you see it with Martin Luther King's campaigns in Birmingham and Selma, that one of the things that was important to the civil rights movement were finding those creative points of tension, as Martin Luther King referred to them, where they could frame those conflicts and kind of force the hand of federal government Uh, to act. So it couldn't be uh, just remain absent and remain in the sidelines, that it was forced to engage and forced to act. And Little Rock Central High is one of the first times that the federal government does overtly act and intervene for civil rights. And it will be the first in many steps by the federal government uh, that were important in terms of showing up to help civil rights demonstrations and to help enforce civil rights in the South.
0: Yeah, and, and we talk so much about the government's role in this. And, uh, you know, there is one student who would later become the assistant secretary of labor for President Jimmy Carter. Who was that? And what can you tell me about these other students?
1: Yeah, Ernest Green, one of the Little Rock Nine, um, was uh, went on to have uh, a distinguished career, as I did, I did many of the Little Rock Nine. You know, I was, uh, I was just down at the Clinton Presidential Library yesterday in Little Rock and uh, eight of the nine were in attendance to a couple via zoom and they were talking about their lives since and they've all gone on to be fairly distinguished um uh in their own careers doing a variety of different things and um you know they're all they've all been quite successful ernest green who you referred to was the first senior to graduate uh, from little rock central high School. Uh, so they've, you know, they, they're still around, they still come back to the city today, some of them even still live in the city today, and there's still a, a, a heroic presence, and, uh, you know, every year the anniversary, this was the 65th anniversary, uh, is, is commemorated, and many of the Little Rock Nine come back, and, you know, are very fondly remembered and embraced by the community now as civil rights heroes.
0: Wow, that is incredible, and um, such such a, a wonderful Zoom call to be a part of too. Just hearing them talk, what were your takeaways about their experiences or where they are now?
1: Yeah, I mean they uh, they're fascinating. They always uh, kind of are uh, very um, mindful of their role and mentorship and leadership and the weight of the voice that they carry in the community. And they're always very respectful when they come back. But they're always pointed uh, to to note that the, the struggle continues and that the journey they started isn't over and that the struggle of school desegregation and of many other civil rights issues continue on today. And they're always very keen to remind the audience that, you know, their struggle is part of an ongoing struggle and that they are very much in the business of inspiring young people today who view their story and look up to them as heroes of the civil rights movement inspiring them and telling them that you know they were just ordinary people who were placed in extraordinary circumstances and uh forced to do extraordinary things and that uh, students of today who they mentor they tell them the same thing that you can do the same thing too you can use your voice to make a difference so they're very much about continuing their legacy working with uh the school children at Central High and, and other places, and they give talks and they encourage other people to become engaged in the process of civil rights too.
0: Yeah, such a wonderful message coming from them, especially. So, we talk about the Little Rock Nine and where they are today, but what is Arkansas's Little Rock School District like in, in present day?
1: Yeah, like many other school districts, you know, Little Rock has gone through a process of resegregation. And in particular, Little Rock is known uh, for being a place where there are many private schools. And in the city today, you have what is very much predominantly African-American public school system and a predominantly white private school system. So uh, Little Rock, like many other urban school districts, has undergone a process of resegregation in recent decades. And uh, school desegregation and the role of race and ethnicity in the city schools, is still very much a life subject even today.
0: We'll be right back after this. Just to get back to kind of that period of time, will you tell me more about the Executive Order 10730?
1: Yeah, that uh, to, was to mobilize um, the, uh, to federalize the National Guard in Arkansas and to mobilize the uh, Airborne Division, the 101st Airborne Division, to go into Little Rock uh, to police the desegregation of the schools by the federal government. Mm. Uh, Eisenhower had spoken with Forbes previously. Uh, Forbes had traveled to Newport uh, to talk with Eisenhower, and Eisenhower had wanted to kind of reach a reasonable solution person to person with Forbes. And he went away thinking that they'd reached this agreement, uh, but then felt that Forbes had kind of betrayed him and uh, act, by acting the way that he did. And I think, you know, in part, of course, Eisenhower was a general. He'd been in the military, been commander of the armed forces in the in World War II Europe. And I think one of the things he didn't like was the uh, perceived insubordination of Forbes and this idea that a state governor was gonna challenge his authority over law and order as president of the United States. And uh, just on the basis of that kind of insubordination, I think Eisenhower was more than happy to put his foot down and say, look, federal government has the authority to do this, uh, and we're going to use the force of the federal government to make sure that you obey the law.
0: Right. And a main way that we were able to kind of consume all of this was because of the media. So what, what role did the media play in all of this? Because obviously watching these nine students showing up, knowing what happened, I mean, I'm sure that just that created a, a big movement during that time. I mean, it's the civil rights movement, but this was, you know, a a focus of a lot of people.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it was really one of the first uh, televised events of the civil rights movement that got global coverage. Uh, You know, I'm from uh, the United Kingdom originally. I did my work there. And so I knew about the Little Rock Central High Crisis and I got interested in it from overseas. So this was an international global event that was broadcast all around the world and all the eyes were upon uh, Little Rock. Uh, So it was a a crucial kind of media event in that sense, and also really important in the context of the Cold War too, because this was a time right at the height of the Cold War, and it was seen as a real sort of propaganda uh, defeat for the United States that, you know, at the same time that um, the Central High Crisis was going on in the news, uh one of the things that actually uh, ended the school crisis role in the news was the launch of the russian uh, satellite sputnik which was launched in october 1957 and the uh, the soviet union was keen to juxtapose you know uh, the united states and little rock kind of being in racial turmoil down below while sputnik flew above uh, and putting the soviets ahead in the space race and kind of shining down on little rock and apparently Radio Moscow used to broadcast where Sputnik was. And Little Rock was one of the places that it would always pick out and saying Sputnik is now passing over Little Rock in this kind of juxtaposition of the United States mired in racial turmoil while the Soviet Union was forging ahead in the space race, launching its satellites. So, you know, the images and the kind of meaning of Little Rock reverberated way beyond the city, way beyond the south, way beyond the nation even internationally and became an international relations issue as well as just a local struggle over wow. school desegregation what,
0: what a fascinating thing to think about that this had this was happening on a global scale to some extent um and, and just learning that you know you grew up in the uk and and you watched this all unfold what do you think was the biggest interest point for you to be like you know what i, I want to look into this further i want to study this
1: Well, it was when I started studying it as one of the few major events of the civil rights movement that hadn't really been kind of looked at in as much detail as other events had. And I think it has a perennial interest because of the age of those students. I think, you know, students themselves uh, can very much identify with the story of the Little Rock Nine because, you know, a lot of the high school students and a lot of college students around the same age have the same kind of you know, outlook of the world and and see things through the eyes of teenagers. And they can put themselves in the eyes and in the position of the Little Rock Nine and know what it's like to go to school and know what it's like to be in that situation. So I think it's a really powerful story, particularly for, particularly for children and young people because they can look up to the central, uh, to, the, to the Little Rock Nine as people who were their age going through the same kind of things, uh, same kind of issues that they were going through as teenagers and look up to them and their courage, and that can empower them too.
0: Absolutely. Um, just kind of, I, I mean, I love learning from you because you've, you've seen it from kind of a different view, and um, you've studied it and you've delved into it. Um, if people are listening at home, what do you think is the most important thing people should know about this?
1: I think that the uh, persistence of the Little Rock Nine it's important, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, a famous abolitionist campaign in the 19th century, uh, once said that power concedes nothing without demand. It never did and it never will. And really it took the will of the Little Rock Nine to persist uh, to go to Central High School for it to desegregate. So if nobody had been willing to apply to go to Central High and put themselves on the line to do it, Little Rock would have remained segregated. If the Little Rock Nine had not pushed through and stayed in that school for that school year despite the intimidation despite the bumps despite the bruises despite the attacks uh, desegregation would not have happened it would have ended so it sometimes takes courageous individuals taking a stand and making a difference to affect monumental change and that i think is the important thing to take away that people who act uh, out of conscience, and uh, you know, in in and their own individual circumstances, can make a major impact on the course of history and the course of the world.
0: Mm. What what um what's a point of inspiration that you think we can draw from this? Knowing the bravery that these nine students had, and then everything that they had to undergo to get us to this point that we are in today, we're in a very different world.
1: Well, they endured. And, you know, one of the great things about seeing them yesterday is that, you know, they're in the late 70s, 80s now, and yet they're still here. Mm. Uh, Unfortunately, one of them has has since passed away, but eight of the nine is still here. Uh, They're persevering and they are still firebrands. They're still very much, uh, you know, engaged in the civil rights movement. Uh, They all survived. They all endured. They all went on to live successful lives. And, you know, they're still here in the late 70s and 80s and you know one of them uh, melba patillo beals joked uh, yesterday that she was looking forward to the 70th anniversary in five years time mm-hmm. so they're they're not looking for they're not looking to give up yet and they're still fighting the fight and they're still marching on even into the 70s as they go into their 80s and that's a uh, pretty inspirational and a literal lifelong commitment to civil rights from uh, school children to you know uh, senior uh, mentors and influencers uh, today.
0: Definitely. And, and they really are someone that we can jo- uh, draw a source of inspiration from their persistence, like you, like you mentioned, and just everything that they had to go through and, and where we are today. I mean, it's, it's really wonderful learning about it. And it's awesome having you on, John. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, we'll have to have you on again in the future.
1: That uh, sounds good. My pleasure. Great talking to you.
0: All right, if you missed anything from class, these are my office hours. And here are some top takeaways about the Little Rock Nine. Number one, the Little Rock Nine are nine students who would end up desegregating Central High School. It would take three years from the Brown v. Board of Education decision to the situation that unfolded in Little Rock when nine African-American students would show up to go to school at Central High School number two almost 200 people applied to be a part of the group who would attend central high school but they had to undergo interviews there were mandatory iq tests they were told there would be no integration in extracurriculars that would mean the students wouldn't be able to be a part of the band or the football team so that 200 number would eventually go down to nine and number three many of the little rock nine would become distinguished in their own careers one student, Ernest Green, would later become the Assistant Secretary of Labor for Jimmy Carter. John also pointed out that some still live in Little Rock and have a heroic presence there. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on the Little Rock Nine. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Fast Dismissed.